Hello and welcome to Anger Management, the democracy podcast of uh, Karen Patterson. That's me. And, and you did. <laughs> That's <laughs> me. That's you. And this time we went back to the Brazilian philosopher and politician Roberto Mangabeira Unger, who we met for the first time a couple of weeks ago and who we were fascinated by. Yeah, it's just a lot of... Uh, open questions that we had. He, he thinks deeply about the relationship between um, institutions and individuals and democracy, how, how, that, how change could happen, what are the forces for change, how, um, how you can think about uh, the future in a non-utopian way, I would say. He's even a realist. Would you say that? I think that's, that's an open question in itself because he talks about incremental steps, but I think he has a very utopian and long-term vision and a very clear view of what he thinks the world should lo look like. He talks about high-energy democracy. Yeah, and he talks about the prophetic voice, which I obviously like. Um, which, being the son of a pastor. Yeah, which might make you uncomfortable being yes. uh, the Swedish Social Democrat. Yes. Um, so, but I think that's why we both like him. We both have something. Well, I think he's one of the great thinkers of our time in terms of uh, progressive ideas. And uh, for people like, like us, I guess, coming from the left, he's one of the few people who thinks outside today's structures and tries to be um, radical and coherent at the same time. And that's also what we try to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, radical yes. and coherent. Yes, but and, uh, I think we do need inspiration. <laughs> So uh, just to explain the project, anger <laughs> management is uh, an ongoing research uh, for radical new ideas in democracy. And uh, there was a confusion, I think, among some listeners why it's called anger management. Is it our personal anger, they asked? And I, I guess the answer would be that, that our ironic take on the subject with a serious con content yeah. is that democracy per se, that's how democracy is. It's It's a form of managing the anger or the energy that's in a society and can do that in a productive way or in a less productive way. But I think it's also the moment, the political moment, and in a less ironic way, I guess, at least for me, it's it's about managing my own personal anger with the state of things. But we should also say that we're two um, European journalists. Prone to irony. Prone no, to irony. Uh, and getting, trying to get rid of irony. Trying basically. to get rid of uh, irony and uh, spending a year at Harvard and having the opportunity to talk to thinkers and scholars in this fantastic environment. Thus, Anger Management is a co-production by our generous host at the Niemann Foundation of um, 60 mm. Pages. And my newspaper, Aftonbladet. And the Berlin Community Radio. So, Professor Unger, thank you for having us back in your home. Thank you. We would like to continue the conversation of um, uh, our greater theme, which is adventures in democratic thinking. And I would like to ask as a first question, why is it so hard for the left or, and for progressives to find alternatives to neoliberalism? Uh, well, uh, a simple account of what happened to the left in the last hundred years is that they came to think that the state control of the economy uh, is neither feasible nor desirable, but the compensatory redistribution achieved by progressive taxation and redistributive social entitlements is not enough to achieve the historical objectives of the left. Uh, and so uh, they are lost. And to some extent, they recognize that they are lost, given that statism is too much and compensatory redistribution is inadequate. Uh, and in this vacuum of programmatic disorientation, they have fixed on a particular project, which is now the hegemonic project of the elites, of the governing elites in the North Atlantic world. And that is to reconcile American-style economic flexibility with European-style social protection within the framework of the inherited institutional arrangements of the economy and of the state. But to understand better the situation of the progressives uh, 
in the European societies, it's important to grasp the nature of historical social democracy and the reasons why the social democratic compromise of the mid-20th century is no longer sufficient uh, as a basis for addressing the structural problems of these societies. So European social democracy can be understood in part as a kind of bargain. The forces that challenged the established organization of the economy and of the state in the early 20th century renounced this challenge. And in exchange for this renunciation of more subversive intentions, the state was allowed to acquire the power to regulate, to redistribute retrospectively by uh, tax and transfer, progressive taxation and social entitlements, and to manage the, the economy counter-cyclically through Keynesian macroeconomic policies. This was the historical character of the social democratic compromise. And in retrospect, one can say that the greatest achievement of social democracy has been to sustain a high level of investment in people and in their capabilities. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there are now uh, fundamental structural problems of these countries that cannot be solved or even addressed without reopening the terms of this compromise and engaging in the institutional experimentalism which historical social democracy abdicated. So I guess my question would be, because last time we were here you mentioned these five themes, uh, themes and uh -huh. we talked briefly about them. And um, I guess today um, my question would be, and my take on things would be that in the historical battle between labor and, and capital that we've seen play mm -hmm. out these last hundred years and where uh, social democracy used to be on the side of, of, of workers, uh, there has been a shift or a tilt in, of balance and where social democratic parties and movements now to a large degree are um, aligned with, with, with the establishment or um, the um, economic policies between right-wing parties or ne and mm -hmm. neoliberal ide ideology has converged with yes. the policies of social democratic parties. So I guess that's, that would be my way of looking at things right now. And, but my question, I guess, again, is why is there so little experimentation? Because you talk about experimentation and the need for, for experimentation in democratic thinking and practice. Mm -hmm. And why, has, why is there so little of that going on right now? Well, I think first one, one has to understand the character of the most important innovations. What is it that we are missing and what is social, so historical social democracy missing? Uh, uh, so first, uh, it's missing a series of uh, policies uh, and, uh, and reforms that would establish the new practices of production in a socially inclusive form. Uh, we have now a, a, a new paradigm of production emerging in all of the major economies of the world, sometimes called the knowledge economy. Uh, it's a form of production that Uh, is uh, knowledge-intensive and uh, radically innovative and experimental. But it appears in the world as confined to insular vanguards rather than widely disseminated in the economy. Vanguards from which the vast majority of the labor force remains excluded. Uh, the tendency of both the center-left and the center-right parties is to accept 
this insularity of the new vanguardism. Uh, and to attempt to prolong the life of traditional mass production industry. Uh, we see this now in the United States. It's the position of both the progressives and the conservatives. Rather than to adapt policies that would disseminate the new advanced practices of production widely throughout the economy. Uh, now, this dissemination uh, requires ultimately a series of innovations in the way that a market economy is organized. For example, it may require in the relation between governments and firms, small and medium-sized firms, a style of coordination, of strategic coordination or partnership that is decentralized, uh, experimental, and participatory. So it is not the American model of arm's length regulation of business by government, and it is not the Northeast Asian model of imposition of a unitary trade and industrial policy by the state. And in the relations among firms, it might require the promotion of what we call cooperative competition. That is, the firms would compete against one another and cooperate at the same time. Ultimately, this institutional architecture would require innovations in the basic regimes of contract and property. So in the legal vocabulary of a market economy. That's, that's the first theme that is, would be central to a fundamental reorientation. And it's an example of a progressive approach to the supply side of the economy. Yeah, because can I just ask about that? Because that's um, we're auditing your and um, Danny Roderick's class, uh, which is called uh, um, Political Economy After the Crisis. And you are very critical of, as I understand it, the focus from the left on only um, stimulating demand or demand side um, policies as a response to the crisis. Yes. And uh, I... Is, is this what you mean by that? Is, is it that the left... It's an or, example. It's, it's an, an example. example. Okay. It's a fragmentary example because I would say that the innovations and policies required for the advancement of an inclusive rather than an insular vanguardism in the economic realm, on the supply side, would have to be complemented by... Uh, a series of other initiatives, and I'll give you an example of, of, of two such initiatives. So, first of all, with respect to the situation of labor and the relation of labor to capital, uh, we now have uh, an increasing percentage of the labor force in precarious employment conditions. Yes. Temporary, subcontracted, conditional, uh, And we have not created a legal regime to protect, organize, and represent these otherwise precarious workers. Is it the is it the role of um, is it that is that the uh, an issue for le- for legislator or legislators or it's is an it issue a, of law? But, but is it not it, also a question of mobilization and or organizing? Well, but. There's a circular relation because one of the objectives of these reforms is to create the legal conditions for the organization and representation of these workers. It's a different circumstance from the circumstance of a stable labor force working in large productive units under the aegis of large corporations. It is the contractualization of labor a kind of new putting out system which would be a, which would be a major project for the left today now a second example uh, is uh, the relation of finance to the real economy which we have discussed in this course yeah. uh, to uh, adopt innovations that enlist finance more effectively in the service of the productive agenda of society and tap 
the dormant productive potential of the vast amount of otherwise sterile capital that is in the banks and in the stock markets and that has only an episodic or oblique relation to production. So all of those are instances of what you could broadly call a progressive approach to the supply side of the economy. And they require innovations in the way that a market economy is organized. So, so in other words, we come to think that it is not enough to regulate the market, it is not enough to attenuate the inequalities generated in the market by retrospective and compensatory redistribution, it is necessary to innovate in the arrangements that define what a market economy is. So it's institutional innovation. It is institutional innovation. I would say that's the first of what I would consider three major projects of the left. The project of democratizing the market by transforming its institutional content. But that project would have to be complemented by two other major projects. One is to equip the individual especially through a new form of education, so that he is able to act in a radically innovative society. And the third project is to change the character of democratic politics, uh, so that we no longer require crisis in the form of economic collapse or military conflict as the enabling condition of transformation. I'm going to let George ask some questions, so <laughs> can I just ask one, one more thing, and that's, um, do you have any examples of where you've seen experimentation that is constructive and moving things in the direction you're talking about? Uh, well, uh, that's what all history is, uh, all of the... All but something's of the happening, something happening now. Where is the on a small scale. So all over the world, what we there's this kind of Brownian motion of micro institutional experimentation, but not harnessed to larger projects, because the range of options available to humanity now uh, in ideas is is very very narrow. We see this. I think we see this most clearly in these major continental developing countries like China or India or Brazil because each of them in a different way is bent under the yoke of mental colonialism and uh, therefore uh, instead of uh, progressing in these projects to which I've been referring uh, they complement the, the traditional social democracy or, or neoliberalism with authoritarian state capitalism uh, rather than uh, defying and renovating the received institutional forms for the organization of the economy and of the state. So I'm trying to understand you're talking about these micro examples, uh, small-scale examples of mm-hmm. experimentation, but to really move change in the direction you're talking about, is it uh, action at state level that's needed, or what kind of, what does it take to really change things? I guess we're coming back to this now, the theory of change, where change well, let's, starts. Well, let's take a historical example. Uh, let's take the example of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in, in the United States. It went through different stages, and Uh, It it has been said that all of Roosevelt's programs fail, but the New Deal as a whole was a success. Uh, And the explanation for this enigma is that it was like a current, like a waterfall. So a a transformative process is not a collection of technical devices, of gadgets. It is a movement. It needs tangible innovations, but what matters most is its fecundity and its persistence in a certain direction. 
Roosevelt's New Deal went through four stages. So there was an early stage of institutional experimentation uh, because Roosevelt himself uh, was was searching for for alternatives. Now, in retrospect, we can see that the shape of the institutional experimentation was actually very limited. And it was focused less on economic empowerment than on economic stabilization. Today, we would describe it as corporatism. And its central principle was concerted action between the government and private enterprise to the managed competition rather than the radicalization of competition or the expansion of economic opportunity. Now, why? Uh, Why did Roosevelt take this direction? He took this direction because those were the ideas available to him. So transformation is provoked by crisis, but in the end, people are at the mercy of their ideas, and the ideas were too narrow. Uh, Then comes the second stage of the New Deal, in which the focus of this early institutional experimentalism narrows to the provision of antidotes to economic insecurity. Then the third stage is the war economy. The war economy was a radical transformation of the organization of the American economy, sensationally successful. Uh, but it, 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 the model that it provided was interpreted as being irrelevant to the subsequent organization of the peacetime economy. Uh, it was, it, what, what drove it was a combination of massive mobilization of resources with radical institutional innovation. Never formalized, never presented in a doctrinal form, but treated as an ad hoc adaptation to the war emergency. And then the fourth stage that was prefigured before the war, but deepened after the war, was the focus on the popularization of consumption. Hmm. Uh, and that then leads to the, subsequent, to the later decades of the 20th century. So what you're saying is that Roosevelt had the idea, uh, he took the ideas that, that were available to him, and then he had an emergency in, ter- in terms of That's the, what the, happens the, in the depression. Yes, and then you had the war. So um, why, I'm coming back to this question, why is there such a lack of ideas then today? Because so this, in your in your way of describing talking about change, it starts yeah. with ideas or with no, the supply. No, it start with ideas. It's supply, uh, it's, but they're necessary. No, ideas are necessary. Yes. No one changes the world without yeah. ideas. But the progressives often uh, talk or act as if the problem of ideas solved itself. So the way they talk, it seems that they believe that you'll have the ideas you need when you want them. But it doesn't work that way, because the stock of ideas, especially of institutional ideas in the world, is relatively inelastic at any given time. So it's a struggle uh, to develop these ideas. And then we get this situation of the progressives confusing insight with strategy. So they talk as if they were concealing for tactical reasons a plan that they don't have. Uh, and uh, so, and this, this, this is a part of their situation. But to, under, to further answer your question about why the dearth of ideas, it's also necessary to understand the role of the high currents of thought in the academic culture. Because after all, the politicians are intellectually derivative from the world of thought. And what we have in the dominant currents of thought is a vacuum of structural vision. The, the, the positive social sciences are rationalizing. Their, their spirit is the spirit of a right-wing Hegelianism. The normative disciplines of political philosophy and legal theory are humanizing. They provide a pseudo-philosophical prop to the ameliorative practices of compensatory redistribution and the idealization of law. 
and the humanities have fallen into a subjectivist adventurism, detached from the reimagination and remaking of society. So where you might expect help, which is from the high culture of the academy, you find only difficulty, uh, illusion, mystification. So it's a complicated struggle because it requires you to perceive transformative opportunity against the grain, against the logic of the ideas that are propounded in the academy. Maybe we can address the same question from another side. Um, I'm interested um, in your writing about the relationship between the institutional on the one side and the individual on the other side. And you talked a lot about institutions. Um, and uh, I think this question maybe ties into the question both of a theory or a strategy of change and the problems of the left. Um, so is, and it also goes back to the vanguard of the 21st century, yes. the advanced uh, yes. ways of production, which is, I guess, Silicon Valley and and um, the very maybe non-hierarchic uh, knowledge economy that, that you point out and, and the 20th century model of a more factory-oriented mode of production which, which I, I guess is tied to the identity of the, of the left still. So, so my, my, my impression is of the European left is that they solve the problems for people who will slowly not exist anymore and they don't um, that's, that's the way that they think that right. they, they have the, the can hold on to power but the more but the question would be now why is it that the left lacks um, a positive world view of, of, of what a man should be I mean that's the that's, that's the basis of, of left thinking going back at least to the French Revolution there, there was a concept of freedom there was a concept of emancipation there was a concept of happiness and I think um, if you don't have that as a promise for, for each citizen you really have a problem to, um, to, to, to motivate them. Uh, well, the, your, your question can be answered at so many different levels. So first, in, in the historical evolution of left thinking or the thinking of the progressives uh, in general, since the early 19th century, there has been a fundamental change. The 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 objective of the left in the early uh, in in the early 19th century, uh, the objective of the progressives, of the liberals as well as of the socialists, was to elevate ordinary human life and the ordinary human agent to a higher level. So the objective was not uh, equality as such. The objective was bigness and a shared bigness. So rather than the elitist idea of a, uh, an, an elite of heroes, geniuses, saints, uh, towering over ordinary humanity, the notion was everyone would be raised up. And the struggle against inequality was ancillary to that larger objective. The method was institutional change, structural change, dogmatically conceived. So. The liberals had one structural program, the, the socialists had another, each of them had their formula. Now, uh, in the subsequent period, uh, from the second half of the 20th century to today, from historical social democracy and neoliberalism to today, uh, the the ambition of structural change of the creation of structural alternatives has been given up. the The idea that we used to have of structural change was the Marxist idea that there are these systems like capitalism and socialism. So if you don't have one, you don't you have another. Uh, and given that this revolutionary transformation is not available, and if it were available would be too dangerous, then on this view what's left is to humanize the existing world. So the leftists and then, the progressives, rather than being transformative, become pietistic. Uh, Their attitude is 
to humanize the program of their conservative adversaries. And imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl and Branch sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Their objective is downsized at the same time that their method is narrow. So now their, their, their method is uh, humanization through compensatory redistribution and regulation, and their goal is equality, but equality interpreted as compatible with the maintenance of the existing structure. So that's what happened. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a radical diminishment of, of the horizon. Now, in this situation, the, uh, the progressives, as you suggested in your comment, are wedded to a world that is ceasing to exist. So, first of all, they're focused on uh, traditional mass production industry and the stable labor force in these large productive units. They vaguely understand that this world is being undermined. They don't see an alternative to it. So they want to make it live for as long as it can. Uh, and this is a hopeless enterprise. Uh, in, 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 in their view of education also, they present no radical project of educational change. So we would need a form of education that is focused on analytic and synthetic capabilities that is prefers selective depth to encyclopedic superficiality, that is cooperative in the method of teaching and learning, and above all, that is radically dialectical, that approaches every subject from contrasting points of view. Education to liberate the mind, to form the mind for radical and perpetual innovation, uh, rather than to create functionaries of the canonical dogmas of the received culture. The left has no such program. Can I get back to the question of the individual, though? Um, because um, I understand that what you're sort of sketching out is how it should happen, but it happens mm -hmm. through, and you yeah. make that very clear, through each individual, in a way, becoming him or herself first, Bigger. and then finding relationship to... Yes certain group interests. Yes. Um, I guess the social democratic approach yes. would be the other way around, or, or ignoring the individual more or yes. less altogether. So if you start in the 21st century, that's... that's I don't your, think that's true, though. I mean, I'm just being polemic. Yeah, that's, uh, that's I'm, unfair. I'm not, I'm not, I don't try to... <laughs> but, let's, but, let's step, but let's step back. So, so, so the... the, the Let's place this in a... In a, in a My in question was, of, yeah. do there need to be new words, new values, new pathways? You, see, you say there has to be a prophetic voice, and you say also, groundedness. Also, also. You say, um, is, is freedom, equality, does that work in yes. this new vanguard economy? Are those the values, are those the words that, that would lead the individual to say, this is my place in the world, this is who I want to be, and those are the, the methods, those are the means, how I get there. Or um, do they have to be sort of new? Can we re re sort of conceive of freedom, equality, um, justice? Well, let's take this example because it's, it's, it, uh, that you give of the words freedom of inequality. So on the conventional interpretation of the ideological dispute in the world, now, uh, the right are the people who give priority to freedom uh, on the, within the established framework. And 
of the established institutions of the market economy. And the that's what they the say, people, really, isn't and it? And the that left are the people who give priority to equality. Yeah. Right? So let's call that shallow equality and shallow freedom. Huh? Uh, now, suppose you relax the restraint of uh, accepting the present structure of the market economy. Then you could imagine that you would have in the, in the simple matrix, deep equality and deep freedom. Now, what would deep equality be? Deep equality would be you would adjust the institutional arrangements to prevent economic inequalities uh, by canceling out forms of accumulation that re or economic concentration that result in inequality. It's like ancient Sparta. Everyone has to be alike. Uh, or r radical restraints on alienation. No one wants that. So what the progressives would really want is what we would call deep freedom. Different from the shallow freedom of the right. That is, they would want the, the institutional and educational conditions of the creation of an agent who is able to thrive and to move and to create and to innovate. But that's a different kind of left because that's then the idea that the cause of the left is not to sugarcoat. It's not this pietistic impulse to humanize the established order. It's to represent the cause of energy, of creation, of construction, of innovation in a radically inclusive form therefore requiring successive procedures of institutional innovation. Huh? Uh, now, I think we can, we can relate your theme to an issue which both of you had raised before as well, which is what in general are the elements of a process of transformation? You, know, you have to have the view of a direction a direction, not a blueprint, and you have to be able to identify the initial steps by which to begin to move in that direction. And you need uh, three, three components in a transformative practice. You need a doctrine, first of all, a set of ideas, defined both as the view of the direction and the view of the initial steps. Second, you need a way of uh, representing the, the real interests of the classes or groups that will sustain the movement. So uh, there's always a, 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 a contrast of different ways of defining and defending a group interest. There are ways of defining and defending a group interest that are institutionally conservative and socially exclusive. And there are ways of defining and defending a group interest that are socially solidaristic and institutionally transformative. So the progressives have to say to their core constituency, uh, traditional mass production industry, belated Fordism, has no future. Uh, and we need to convert it into something else. And the process of converting it into something else is intimately related to the process of lifting up the vast periphery of retrograde small businesses, in the, especially in the service economy, to bring it closer to the economic vanguard. Uh, so the people whom you used to think of as your enemies who are these temporary workers on the one side, or the small business class, the petty bourgeoisie on the other side, are in fact your potential allies in this program of economic reorientation. That's the second element. Let's call that calculus. The third element is the prophetic voice, is the vision of another person, another life. In the work of political prophecy, the 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 prophet always has to offer a down payment on the future that he promises. 
he has to be able to touch the wound, he has to be able to point to something tangible right now and say, that's a visible image of the future that I, that I see. Huh? And, uh, as, an, as an agnostic uh, Sanho preacher, I can totally relate to that, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and I, I see that. Uh, historically, I think there might be some difficulty in um, accepting such a prophetic voice Having lived through the 20th century, uh, I think there's there's some layers to be um, shed from from that. There's it's 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 met with distrust to say the least. But but but, but I'm, I'm curious. It, that's how it turned out in the 20th century, okay. which doesn't mean that it has to turn out like that in the 21st century. And I'm trying again to go back to the question of what are the words that we use to construct that prophecy or or how to construct that vision. Um, so freedom and equality, I freedom and equality, we, I, we, not just uh, because you, you, have, you have a very, very surprising word, which goes back to the, to, to, to the prophecy question or to the religious aspect of politics. So, so you, I don't think you even mention freedom that much. I, I don't, I'm not sure. You have words like groundedness um, or belittlement, which is something uh, similar to inequality, I guess. Or you have the, the one central word, it seems, uh, at least in the book Democracy Realized, which is a very biblical word um, and which might equate freedom in some way for you, uh, love. Um, But freedom is an important word, and, uh, and I just gave you an example of how it can be reinterpreted by what I call deep freedom as opposed to shallow freedom. Uh, how is it really to love? What's, so so what? we, we don't... The, in, in politics or in religion, we don't uh, invent a language ex nihilo. We start with the language that exists, and uh, because language is a collective possession. No one can have an idiosyncratic language. And we begin to give new meanings to our words, uh, relating them to concrete experiences and, and, and innovations. Uh, uh, now you said that the Europeans understandably are skeptical or uh, apprehensive of the prophetic impulse but that's only one example of many ways in which they have justified littleness to themselves uh, because their experience in the 20th century is an experience in which bigness was connected with disaster and with war. Huh? And now they've taken that to be a justification for smallness. But it isn't a justification for smallness. It's a justification for persisting. Huh? But, but I'd like to place this, this, this conversation in another context, which is a, a, a world historical context. We, we um, for the last 200 years, there has been a revolutionary project in the world that has emanated from, uh, from the West. Uh, and uh, this project has had two wings, a political wing and a personal wing. So the political wing has been carried by the doctrines of democracy, of liberalism, and of socialism and uh, promising a, a structural change in the conditions of, of social life. The personal wing has been carried by romanticism and especially by the worldwide popular romantic culture. And it is just as revolutionary as the other one. Uh, and it, it, the message that it carries uh, in the in the TV soap operas or in popular music is that the, the ordinary, small, belittled, humiliated person shares in the attributes of the divine. Uh, and this message is received, it's heard throughout the world. Uh, so this project now, this is the revolutionary project in its two faces, the political and the personal. It has been the dominant project in the world for 200 years. It has enemies, but it is the project that has commanded the agenda 
and all the other projects in the world respond to it. This, this, we are now living in a counter-revolutionary interlude, in a long revolutionary period in the history of humanity. Uh, It is a revolutionary period created by the dissemination of this project throughout the world. Uh, The project is now paradoxically strong and weak at the same time. It's strong because uh, it is the project that that commands, that has commanded the agenda. But it's weak because its, its, its votaries, its champions, no longer know what its next step should be. So in that sense, it's lost. And it's lost both on the political side and on the personal side. So on the political side, it's the, it, the, its disorientation has to do with the issues that we were discussing. It has no structural program. So, and I'm giving you examples of what a structural program would be. It would be to democratize the market, to equip the individual through a radically different form of education, and to create a high-energy democracy that doesn't need crisis to produce change. Uh, On the personal side, uh, uh, we don't have now an an adequate conception of how to live our lives that would be responsive to the ambitions of this project. So that's I'm curious, super interested in that. So yeah. So 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 if if you if you take the West, we have we have two moral agendas. Uh, uh, We have the agenda of Christian charity, which is focused on an idea of of altruism, of sacrificial action in the world. And we have the romantic idea. And and both of these are inadequate uh, for, as guides to living a life. Uh, So because they don't connect to structural well, change. Well, well, yes, we'll no. take the example of the romantic idea. Mm. So the, the, a, one of the characteristics of the romantic idea is it presupposes a contradiction between spirit and routine or structure. Uh, so, for example, there's the idea of romantic love uh, in the romantic novel. But in the romantic love... Is, does not survive marriage. And so marriage is routine, is repetition. Kierkegaard said that the war against repetition is a war against life. Uh, and so in the romantic novel, uh, the whole purpose is for the protagonist to win his girl uh, and the experience of love. But then the actual routine of marriage is unimagined and unimaginable. Uh. So there's no exit uh, and from So there. there's no... And, and why? Because there's this idea that, re- that the routine is death to the spirit. Huh? The same thing in its political imagination. So the romantic idea is there's a revolutionary interlude, there's the mob in the streets, and then the bureaucratic apparatus comes back. There's the cultural revolution. Uh, Mao understands that it's just an interlude. The bureaucracy will come back. But there's this interlude of true life. Huh? So, but then the, the structure comes back like the hand of Midas and kills the spirit. Huh? Uh, so this is a form of despair because it despairs of the possibility of changing the relation between spirit and structure. So it does start so, with the family. So that's the, going back to the 60s. Is that the... There, that's, so, so, I'm in, so, so what I'm saying is, is there is in the realm of our moral ideas an unexplored and undeveloped parallel to the political ideas we were discussing. Uh, so, but the political is modeled after the private. Yeah. So, for example, uh, so, well, each is a model for the other. I don't know that one has primacy over the other. So, for example, we have in our culture the uh, the idea of a. Uh, 
a well-formed and integrated personality. Uh, so it, 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 the Nietzsche's uh, conception is an extreme form of this. The individual's life is a work of art, and he chisels himself as if he would be chiseling a statue in marble. Uh, uh, and he, he, there's a self-construction that results finally in a harmonious and integrated personality. But we can think that, in fact, this the rigidified form of the self, which is a character, is a kind of mummy within which we die. Uh, and we shouldn't want that. We should want to live life as a search. And we should take measures to undermine the formation of this carapace, which kills us. Uh, uh, and that, that requires a different attitude to life in which we, uh, we, we reject the romantic idea of the contradiction between spirit and structure, but we also reject this idea of forming a, a harmonious and integrated character. And we live life as a search. And, and we think that uh, uh, the, 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 com- the most common mistake that people make in their lives is that they devote their lives to objectives that are too small. Uh, and uh, as a result of this, they belittle themselves and they become imprisoned in these mummies, which are their rigidified selves. So that's an example of, of how this idea of radical innovation in social life in its political form has characterological counterparts, that is, in, in, the, in the formation of a, of a different view of the individual, of the person, which is what you were asking about. Huh? So what I'm saying is that if we want this revolutionary project that has aroused humanity for 200 years to retain its power, to inspire, to undermine, to subvert, to, to, to smash, we have to reinvent it. Uh, and uh, we have to give it new meaning, and both at the political level and at the personal level. Uh, and that's what humanity needs. So the, the, that's not the position of, of, the, of the progressives now. The, pro, the position of the progressives is colonizing this diminished space with a pietistic impulse huh, of this is a savage world, a savage society, let's humanize it. But we don't want to humanize, we want to divinize, we want a larger life. Uh, and uh, that's what humanity wants, and that's what this project, revolutionary project, has represented in the world, and we should want it to go on. To do that, we can't tolerate the present situation. The present situation is that the right represents the cause of energy, and the left represents the cause of the humanization of the savage energy embodied by the right. The left has to represent the cause of energy, both both politically and personally. So is the method then, you talk about experimentation, is that the method that you have to... Is that where you have to start? Well, let's, but let's be careful about this word experimentation. So there, there, there are two points to distinguish. So uh, it is true that, that, we, that we are in a different situation from the liberals and socialists of the 19th century. They believed in dogmatic institutional blueprints the liberal system of rights, the socialist command economy, and so forth. We, justifiably, are unable to bring ourselves to believe in these dogmas. So our unique situation is that we have come to understand that we need structural alternatives, but that we must not succumb to structural dogmatism. Uh, we must conceive of these alternatives, not as blueprints, but as directions, uh, with this search for the initial steps. 
So that's the sense of, exper- of experimentalism, that we should not fetishize or dogmatize the institutional content of a direction. On the other hand, experimentalism does not mean institutional vacuity. It doesn't mean that we don't defend particular alternatives in particular circumstances. I gave you examples of alternatives that I defend with the, about the, 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 the advancement of inclusive vanguardism, the, the change of the relation of labor to capital, the change of the, of the relation of finance to the real economy and so forth. So experimentalism should not mean an abdication of particular institutional proposals and commitments. And it also needs direction, so I guess. The direction, yes. The, and, and our view of the direction always changes in, in, in the light of our experience. So, so we have a view of the direction. We need a view of the direction as well as an identification of initial steps. But as we go along, we reinterpret our sense of the direction in the light of our movement. So that's how things happen. How do you um, translate that to the personal? So there is this parallelism between that I was pointing to between the problem of structure in society and the problem of character in the individual. And I was, I was saying that we... Um, just as we should not surrender to the established structure in society, we should not surrender to the rigidified form of our own selves. And that's this idea of living life as a search in the hope of dying only once. And bigness. Uh, because then we... What, what kind of bigness do we desire? We have the idea that, that the attribute that we share with the divine uh, that we in, in the sense in which we would want to divinize ourselves is the attribute of transcendence so this is the crucial point in the in the conception of the self this is hard we, for a secular we spirit. are we are there is more in us than there is in the world that we inhabit so all of the structures of social life are Uh, finite in comparison to us and we are not finite in comparison to them we exceed them so we always have a potential of experience of invention that uh, goes beyond what the established form of life will allow that's what makes us human the idea of transcendence that we 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 transcend our circumstance. There's more in us than there is in these worlds that we inhabit. We are not the puppets of these worlds. That's the central idea. Uh, and then we want an, an organization of society, of politics, of the economy, that uh, recognizes and develops this attribute of ours that allows us to be both insiders and outsiders, to engage without surrendering. And we want a way of living, uh, of organizing our lives that will, that will do justice to this, to this attribute of humanity. That's the point about searching for an alternative. To, so you could, you, could, you could imagine a spectrum of views now regarding the relation of the person to the structure huh? in which the two poles are two heresies. So you call one the Hegelian heresy, that there is a definitive structure, that there's a convergence at the end of history to a framework which is our definitive home. Now, we never have a definitive home in the world, but we can, some structures are better than others, And we can hope to change the relation of structure to us. Huh? The other heresy is the romantic heresy, the existential heresy. You could call it the Sartrean heresy, which is this idea that every structure is evil. And authentic human life 
exists only in those interludes in which we shake the, the, the rule of the structure. So either there's the notion of a definitive structure or there's this idea of the antinomy between spirit and structure. Those are two bad ideas. And, and we have to progress in a space defined by the rejection of those, of those two heresies. Professor Unger, thank you for this afternoon uh, in the pl place between, in, in the middle of the blizzard, because uh, <laughs> that's where we, um, I think we were in this place for some time now, um, that, that place, the Sartre place of um, thank you. interlude. Um, thank you for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.